Okay, so now we return to the book of Ruth, and last week was pretty amazing. A very simple review from what we looked at last week in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is in the same timeline as the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a very difficult and dark time, not just a decade, not even just a century, but like three, three, four centuries of very difficult times for God's people of covenant in the promised land of Israel from about 1500 to 1100 BC. Moses got him to the edge of the promised land. Joshua got him into the promised land. And then the various judges were good leaders to that God raised up at various times to bring about good things. But that cycle of uh, crying out to the Lord, being given over to the enemies, God giving him a judge, and then the judge lives and good things happen, the judge dies, bad things happen, and another generation goes through hard times and cries out again. And it's all summarized in the last verse of the book of Judges, says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in that background the book of Ruth is presented to us. Now we know that Ruth is going to have a child at the end of this book. It's an amazing story. It's an incredible love story. And that child is Obed, the son of Boaz. And Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. And Jesse has a son. His name is David. So all this is moving us toward the time of the great King David. It's pretty pretty cool when you think, when we look at Boaz tonight, and now um, on our second uh, part of this book, Boaz comes into the story and he's just this amazing man. He's not a judge, but he's a really good man. And we're going to see that tonight. And God's going to bless him, and he's going to bless Ruth. He's going to bless Naomi. And while last week Naomi returned to her homeland after being in Moab for 10 years, losing her husband, losing both her sons in a time of famine, she returns home where they had given up their property before they left 10 years before. She returns empty-handed. Everyone's glad to see her, and they say, oh, Naomi's back, which means pleasantness, and she says, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me, and his hand is against me. And that's where we left off. So the one daughter-in-law stayed back in Moab, but the other daughter-in-law is Ruth, and she chose to come home with Naomi to Israel. She left her family, everything she knew, and that famous text that we saw last week, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and where you die, I'll be by your side. It's incredible. So now we pick it up in chapter 2 with that background. And they arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. And Naomi had returned to Israel from modern Jordan, across the Jordan River, back to the west, to Israel, having heard that there was bread in Israel. And a reminder that Bethlehem means house of bread. And that's where she's from. They left because there was no bread 10 years before because of the famine. But now she's returning because you follow the food trail. And like we said before, even if you're a widow or if you've gone through tragedy and heartache, You still got to get up and go to work. You still got to find food. That's the human experience for most of the 8 billion people on this planet. Tragedy doesn't stop necessity. And that's also part of this background to the story. So now we're there in the barley harvest and we read this in chapter 2, verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. Now Elimelech was Naomi's husband who passed away. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And so Naomi said to her, Ruth, go go, my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come along to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. 
This is our introduction to Boaz. Those of you who are raised Catholic, you remember, we used to turn around and say, the Lord bless you and, and also bless you. We used to pronounce those blessings at a Catholic service, and it's ingrained in my memory as a child growing up that you'd, at a service, you'd be pronouncing blessings upon each other. Of course, we know in the law, there's that famous text, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, which I sang for you a couple months ago with the, with the help of uh, <laughs> Jeff Anderson. I mean, I did gouge it the first time, but we did get it the second time. Once we had the scripture in front of us, we could remember the songs like Pastor Chuck used to sing. So the children of Israel, the people of Israel are supposed to pronounce blessings. The priests are supposed to pronounce blessings on them. So the Lord bless thee and keep thee, be gracious unto thee, make his face shine upon thee. God wanted his people to know in the promised land that he's a blessing God, that he's a good God. We're, we're just singing that tonight with Chris. All my life you've been faithful. So, so good to me. God is a blessing God. Jehovah blesses. He blessed with giving his son, Yeshua, to die on the cross for our sins. God is a blessing God. Even in the trials and tribulations of Job's life, it'd be said that the Lord had a good end ending intended through it all. Wait for the end of the story when it comes to the Lord. It's always a good ending. It's not a drama that might be an okay ending. It's a drama that always has a happy ending with the Lord. It's always a good ending because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is a blessing God. And as Naomi's return and says, call me Mara because God has dealt bitter with me, she needs in her own heart to learn that God is a blessing God. Now, we saw last week that she talked about God's kindness for her daughter-in-laws, that God would show kindness to them. But we talked about she probably felt like she would hope for that kindness, but felt like she hadn't seen it or known it. Because the tragedies of losing your husband and your, your oldest son, your big boy, and your youngest son, your baby boy, who can even fathom the depth of sorrow and grief? Then you don't have a job, you have no property to go home to, and you're in a foreign land. So we all understand the context when she said, you can call me Mara and not pleasantness because God has been against me. And here's a contrast in this second segment of this story. Here comes Boaz. We're told he's a, he's a relative. That's important because we know with the Goel, the kinsman redeemer in the law of God, that if a brother died and didn't provide, uh, him and his wife did not have offspring, then it was a duty, the kinsman redeemer's duty, duty to to have, provide a child for that wife so the inheritance could continue in the family. Because God, you know, remember we saw he divided the inheritance in the book of Joshua, and it's very important that it stays in the tribe, in the family. And so God had a system by which wealth was preserved as he gave it and promised it to Israel in their covenant in the families. And so the Goel is a kinsman redeemer who, in the event of there is no offspring, and we saw this with the daughters of Zolophet, how that worked as well, a unique situation, that someone, the nearest kinsman redeemer, could uh, provide offspring for that family. In this case, it's actually Naomi, Naomi's inheritance being restored to her. So when you sold your property in Israel, you could buy it back at a later time. You had that opportunity and that right. You're almost like lending it out, but then it came to a point where you couldn't buy it back. And so you could use a kinsman redeemer from your family, your uncle, your nephew, whatever, to buy that property back. And that's why Boaz is very important here, and that's why these details are very important to the story. Because this man is a very wealthy man. We're told he's a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, in his name. Now, just because he's wealthy doesn't mean he's a good guy. And just because he's wealthy doesn't mean he's a bad guy. We've talked about this. There's no virtue in poverty, and there's no virtue in wealth. Abigail's husband 
Nabal is his name and fool is what his name means. He was wealthy and David did good things for him, protected his flocks from the thieves and the robbers. And when David asked for help, he wouldn't do anything for him. And David was coming to wipe him out. And Naomi came out there and interceded for her husband and her family and the servants. And David heeded her counsel. And she said, when you're a king, you won't even remember this wrong to you. So please let it go. And then God actually struck down Nabal. He was very wealthy. But he wasn't benevolent with his wealth. Boaz, we're going to see, is very benevolent with his wealth. He's a generous man with his wealth. So he's introduced to us. He's a relative of Naomi. He is a kinsman redeemer goel for Naomi for her offspring, because her sons died. And he's, he, he meets the criteria. That's why this is important detail. And um, he's wealthy. And this is interesting, because remember, when Naomi left Bethlehem, there was a famine. Now, we talked about famine, so let's talk about this for a minute. Abraham, the father of faith, was tested by a famine. He panicked, went to Egypt. His wife was faithful. And he got rich in a famine because of his wife's obedience. Then there's a famine in the time of Isaac, the son of promise. He stays in the land. He begins to sow. He begins to prosper. He prospered very much and became a very prosperous person. The, the description of what happened for his life during the famine as a son of promise is a noun, adjective, and verb. It's, it's descriptive that he, everything about him, he became prosperous. But we're told he sowed in the land during a famine. So when people were attracting like you might do during the last two years, he was expanding during a famine. Jacob had a famine. And we know the story of Jacob where his sons were divided and Joseph's down there. Joseph had the famine, and Joseph saved his family in the famine, provided not just for his family, all the family, all 70 of them, but the entire nation of Egypt. There are famines. Now, these are agricultural famines, but we have famines too. We've talked about this. You have a famine from supply chain, a famine of quality capable people providing services, uh, a famine of good leadership, spiritual leadership, of good laws, good decisions. There's a lot of kind of famines you can have. And the whole planet's been in a famine for a couple of years here, a, a real famine of various things. But this context here was a f the famine that took uh, Naomi and her husband to sell their property, let it go, and move to a distant land was a severe enough famine that they couldn't even plow their field. But isn't it interesting how Amimelech left Bethlehem in a famine, but Boaz stayed and prospered in a famine? It's like you see everybody leaving California, moving to Texas and Tennessee and North Carolina and Florida and all these places. And that's, if that's what God has for them, good for them. I say goodbye to Ryland and Wendy on Friday night. They've moved to Texas. I thought I was going to cry. I didn't. But it was so good to be with them. But we need to be where God wants us to be. And if God wants us to be in a difficult land in Rome or wherever we are, or even Sodom and Gomorrah, if that's where we're supposed to be, that's where we're supposed to be. And it's not about the famine of leadership or spirituality or capable jobs or competent people or supply chain or anything else, because it's always about you and the Lord. Jesus is the bread of life, spiritually. And he provides the manna from heaven, practically. Jehovah Jireh means God will provide. And 
I find it very interesting that Naomi and her family left everything in a famine when they couldn't even plow their field, but their relative, Boaz, figured out a way to stick it out, stay in the land, and prosper. He became wealthy, extremely wealthy, during the famine. I remember speaking with my good friend Luke Caldwell about a year ago, who's a multimillionaire with all of his property investments in Idaho over the last 10 years. And I asked him before the election, well, you know, about real estate and what's going to happen, this and that. And he says, Joey, real estate's always strong. It doesn't matter who's in the White House, people need a place to live. And they're going to buy those houses and they're going to rent those houses. Don't let a famine of political nature affect your thinking for how human behavior takes place year after year, year after year, country after country, in every generation. The human race goes through famines. So in this text, I'm reminded, wow, the famine that they left, and now they left because there was no bread, and now they're coming back because there's bread. She's heard there's bread, and lo and behold, who has the bread during the barley season? Her relative, Boaz. Boaz didn't flee. I'm not saying people that left California fled. I'm just saying he didn't, he didn't leave. He stayed, and he prospered. That's very encouraging to me and all of us. And you younger people who think you'll never be able to afford a home in California, probably won't. But that doesn't mean you leave. That doesn't mean anything. God hasn't given up on California, hasn't given up on the United States, and he has not given up on the human race. So it's just an important reminder that when God's blessing you, he's blessing you. And Boaz is our kind of boss. You go to work with some guys who are like, hey, do this, or some women like, do this, do that, and they're just like the heavy, you know, the heavy thumb, whatever. Like, how's Boaz? How'd you like to work for Boaz? He shows up and he says, uh, the Lord be with you. Now, isn't that a way to start work at 7 in the morning? Or the after 1 o'clock shift or whatever, graveyard shift, 11 night, you show up like, the Lord be with you. And you're like, yes, and also with you. Right? Like, that's who you want to work for. Not only is he a wealthy man, but he's a generous wealthy man. And he knows the Lord, and he knows that his wealth comes from the Lord. You see, I'm convinced that just because you're in a famine doesn't mean God's determined you to be the tail and not the head, as it says in the Old Testament. Our God's a blessing God, and we do go through different circumstances. And in life, he gives some people one minus, some two, some five, some ten, or twenty. But I believe that if we're faithful to what he gives us, he does entrust more to us. Because life is, an ex- is a journey to be Proven in faithfulness and stewardship. If you're faithful with the minimum wage job, you'll probably get a better job. Because God knows. When you, when you study anybody that's ever been extremely successful financially, J.C. Penney and all these kind of people, they'll tell you their first job was a job no one wanted to do. I always find it fascinating to read like airline magazines when you read about someone famous like Steve Jobs or whatever. And you say, what was the first thing you ever did? It's like, oh my goodness, who does this? But as you're faithful in these little things, and we taught our children to be faithful, 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 whether they're working at Subway or mowing lawns or whatever they're doing, show up early, do the job, do it right. Complete the job, and don't give sass to your boss. And that'll do really well for us in our life. And if you have bosses that don't like you and bosses that do, we'll come back to that later. Because this chapter is going to end with favor and disfavor. So we'll come back to that. God can give you favor of the boss and disfavor of the boss. But if you have anyone underneath you in your home 
or in your place of employment, even if they're uh, 1099 subcontractors, whatever, man, what is better than to have you show up and say, the Lord be with you? Like that's, you're just, you're inviting Jesus to be over your business, your enterprise, your, your life. And just the Lord be with you and also with you. And then, you know, you could show up for work and be like, because there's a lot of people that say they're Christians and are bosses and people don't want to work for them. But if you truly are a Christian and you have learned to prosper in a famine and you show up and the first thing you do is pronounce God's blessings on your people, more than one of them will say back to you, the Lord bless you. Isn't that a great way to start work? Sounds like the millennial reign of Christ or something. We're all wake up with horses in their bells and say, holiness of the Lord. And we're all like, the Lord bless you. No, the Lord bless you. Let's get to work, you know? Like, this is the kingdom of God on earth the way it's meant to be in the church of Jesus Christ, 2022. That you show up in your sphere of influence and you bring the blessings of the Lord into that place. And you're a benevolent leader. You don't have to be wealthy financially, which is preferable than poverty financially, of course, I think, personally. But still, you can have spiritual wealth that there's no end to. Because in the end, spiritual wealth is the only wealth that really matters anyways. The widow's might is set aside for us in Scripture for all eternity to study the woman who gave the least but gave her all. And she's a Hall of Famer in the realm of God's equity of wealth. As we go forward in this new year, as we go to work and people are over us and under us or we're serving customers, so maybe, maybe not over anyone, you're like the lowest person on the totem pole where you work. You're still serving people. And maybe you can't say, the Lord bless you, but you can. You can how you treat those people that you're serving. You can say, the Lord bless you. There's a Starbucks right outside Mobile, Alabama. It's my favorite Starbucks. It's such a good Starbucks, I bought a coffee cup. The Alabama coffee cup from that Starbucks. Don, Jamin, Don and Shannon James have been at Starbucks too, and they know exactly which one I'm talking about. Because when you're road warriors, you know where those Starbucks are. And I noticed when we went there the first time, at 7 in the morning, every single person was in a great mood, super happy and super friendly, and wanted to chat with us. And it wasn't just Southern charm, like, they really love their place of employment. We go there again, and it's the same spirit in that Starbucks with different people. That's management. That's leadership that flows down from the top. People want to work at that Starbucks. Now, there's Starbucks maybe you don't want to work at because maybe the, G the DM or whatever, the people, you know, they're not like that. But I'll tell you what. I've never felt so led to write a letter to Starbucks in Seattle and say, this manager, and I took her card when I was there, is someone that should be working for you at corporate at the highest level because this person is unbelievable to the benefit of your corporation. And she doesn't need me to write the letter because she'll probably rise up anyways. And if she doesn't, she makes Mobile, Alabama and Daphne, Alabama a happier place to live. That's how you want to be. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. You know one of those places where you see a long line? I was at Huntington Beach Post Office today. It was like 20 deep. And, you know, there's the people that work at that one on Atlanta. Uh, they're, they're, they're lifers. They've been there forever. I know their stories because you chit-chat with them because Huntington Beach has that kind of charm. 
they, I like to, I don't mind waiting in line to talk with them. And they're not grumpy or irritable because their line is never ending at that, at that, that post office. I'm sending out stuff to the IRS and I'm in a good mood. Oh, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. You may not be able to say it, but you can bring it and you can be it. Body of Christ 2022. Be like Boaz. Come from the house of bread, sowing in the land of famine and prospering in famine. Bring your barley, bring your smile and pronounce blessings on the people all around you. That's who we want to be. Because Boaz is a hero in this story and he elevates everybody and the great King David comes through him and the Lord Jesus Christ comes through him. There's a very special man in the Bible. Boaz, a wealthy man. He was wealthy financially because he was wealthy spiritually. It doesn't always go that way. But his wealth was double. He got the daily double and he could be entrusted with it. Now we read on. We want to be a blessing people, and we want to bring, since our God's a blessing God, we want to make sure we're pronouncing the blessings on everybody, and that people that really know us, when we say it, they don't go, oh, man, you're such a hypocrite. They go, no, the Lord bless you too. That's who we want to be. Then we read on in verse 5. So he's the blessing guy. Now, verse 5, this is where the story really starts to get traction. Then Boaz says to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, hey, uh, whose young woman is this? Hmm. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, said, it's that young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she had said, uh, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning till now, though she rested a little in the house. In the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, hey, hey, listen to me. You will listen to my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she, Ruth, fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. And have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, whose wing you have come for refuge. He's just, he's just pouring more blessings on, right? He's blessed his employers. Now he's blessing the foreign women. I've never, I've, I've traveled much in foreign lands and I've spent a couple months in Australia at, in increments. In my youth, and you know, been to Japan. I spent a month in Japan in '79. I've been back there many times since. And you know, when you're a foreigner, a foreign land, you're a foreigner. Like you, you even if they speak the same language. Like we go to England and hang out in uh, Nuki and where the surfers all are. The culture is completely different. Their slang, their terminologies, their idioms. Just like you think, like all Latinos are the same. No, they're not. A Cuban and a Chilean are completely different, and a Mexican. They're very different. Their idioms, their slangs, their, their culture, their, their similarities, yeah, but that's like saying all white people are the same. Like, we're the same as Irish and the French and Germans, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, there's, there's diversity. And there's times you feel very awkward in a foreign country. With all my friends in Chile and all the time I spent there, there's times I felt awkward in Chile. You're like, hmm. I'd be like, hmm, Ringo. <laughs> Espanol malo, like bad Spanish from the gringo. That's the gringo. And you just, there's just, even in the same language, you feel 
I mean, even America, if you go from California, go live in Arkansas, you're going to feel like an outsider. Someone comes from Tennessee, first day of high school, Edison High School, do you think they're going to be welcomed? Think how they're going to, yeah, what? I know, because I moved to California in sixth grade, and an East Coast accent, and I got shredded the first three months of school. I thought I'd make them all pay. I figured out what they really liked most. You know what it was? Surfing. And I was going to surf better than all of them. And I was going to make them pay for making fun of my Virginia accent. It's hard to be a foreigner. She's a foreigner in this land. She said, your people will be my people. Here they are. Your God will be my God. She's all in. She left her family, everything she knew. Completely 100% new identity. And she's the lowest spot on the totem pole. By the way, this is not the point, but this is why you want to value people when they struggle with English and whether from India, Pakistan, the Middle East, or Asiatic countries. When they're serving you, treat them with respect. God will honor that. You know the Bible tells you when you bless the poor, you're given to God, and he always repays. It says that in Proverbs. Let me say that again. When you bless the poor, you're giving to God, and he always repays. We often are repulsed by other cultures when they're not friendly, they don't smile, and they're rude. But you don't know how they've been treated coming from another country, immigrating in this country. So it is really important that we treat all humanity with respect and dignity. And that brings a blessing on us. We don't know their story. Because my natural inclination is to be rude. Like, you're rude to me, like... like I'll tell you, I've thought, like, dude, you got this gas station because you got a government loan that I can't get because I'm white. I've thought that. Because they can get a loan that I can't get. But that's to their benefit, and that's nothing against me. I'm not, I don't, I don't blame anyone for fleeing New Delhi or Bangladesh or anywhere else. This is the greatest country in the world. This is why people still want to come here. I always say when people say they hate this country, good, leave. There's plenty of people that want to replace you in the roster and on the team. But just how even Boaz and his wealth, because sometimes people accuse wealthy people of looking down on poor people, right? I remember when I worked room service in Vermont. <laughs> Lowest spot on the totem pole, picking up the dirty dishes where you had to put the cigarette butt in the coffee cup and that kind of stuff. Ooh, 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 bad stuff. And if you've had those jobs, you know. I remember one time I went to the, uh, the presidential suite and I knocked on the door. I was getting dirty dishes. And I opened the door. I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm wearing my little green suit, Joey badge, Sheraton. I said, I'm here to pick up the dirty dishes. And they did this to me. You ready? They did this. I was like, what the heck? I was like, don't try that at Tamarack. I tried that at Oceanside Harbor. Like all the pride in me. Like, dude, you know you're talking to me right now, man. What's this? They literally cupped their hands and went like this. I was like, I'm getting paid $4.40 an hour. That's not enough to put up with that stuff. So often, people with wealth look down on people with poverty, right? We don't see that from Boaz here. He's a benevolent leader. He's a spiritual man. He's prospered in famine, and he doesn't take from people in a famine. He gives to people in a famine. Ah. He gives to people in a famine because he realizes the heart of the Lord is for the poor, and he's actually getting wealthier as he's given away in a famine. Give her more. Give her gleanings. And another thing that's noteworthy here in a, a strong application is 
The Lord knows. We can do good almost like Cinderella, and you can get, feel like you get no credit for it, and you're persecuted, you're maligned, and misunderstood. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. God knows that you are generous when no one sees it. God knows you forgive great evil when no one sees it. God knows. There's nothing hidden before him to whom we must all give an account. And the Lord knows. And no good deed, no blessing in eternity will ever go undone, even a cup of cold water, in his name. And if it doesn't get rewarded and straightened out and blessed in time, know for sure, body of Christ, church of Jesus Christ, that it certainly will in eternity. Because Jesus promises so. But here I find it very interesting, this man of wealth, this man in power, this man who's benevolent, not looking down on this foreigner, having empathy on this foreigner, knowing this foreigner's story, caring about this person, he pronounces God's blessing on her. And this woman had said, your God will be my God. And all she knows of Jehovah is that Jehovah killed her husband, her brother-in-law, and her father-in-law. That's all she knows, because Naomi would remind her every day, God is against me. He took my husband, your, my son, your husband, and my other son, your brother-in-law. So her saying, we talked about this last week, all she saw in 10 years, at least from the human experience that we understand, is that Jehovah took this man, this man, this man, and yet she says, your God will be my God. She had determined that the worst day with Jehovah is better than the best day with Chemosh, the Moabite God. So she's willing to take death with the worst day with Jehovah over the best day with Chemosh, the bully God. I believe in her heart. Now, she lost her husband. And maybe she was raised with Chemosh and the false gods of Moab. And maybe somehow she shifted to faith in Jehovah. And maybe the God of all comfort who comforts us comforted her in the loss of her husband. We don't know. But know this. She came to a confession of faith. There's only one God she's going to serve, the God of Israel, the God of Mount Sinai, the God who gives his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And now Boaz comes along, and he says, God knows what you've done for your mother-in-law. I know what you've done for your mother-in-law. It has been reported to me what you've done. We don't Sometimes we feel like we need to give our defense or we need to explain why we've done this or done that or we want people to know we've done good when they accuse us of doing bad. God knows. God knows. And there's an equity and a value with him because he knows when you've done good. Let's just say there's a family situation and you've done good, you've turned the other cheek and you forgave this stuff and somehow other family members are blaming you for everything that's wrong. That happens a lot in the human experience. God knows. God knows. And we have to remember when we feel like we're not getting credit for good we've done, like we wrote the song but someone else got the number one hit for it in the record deal. That happens. We wrote the script, they stole it and became an Emmy Award winning TV show or a Grammy movie, whatever. People steal from people all the time. They steal ideas. Randy Crosco, who was a, a deacon here for years, he has a brilliant mind to set forth business plans. And when he was unemployed, he applied for these different jobs. and like, well, give us a proposal what you do. And he gave proposals, and then they stole them and didn't hire them. God knows. God knows what you did for good. And he knows what they did for evil. 
And you need to forgive them because they'll just wreck your life to worry about what they did to you. And you just got to move on and try and figure out what the Lord wants you to learn from it. God knows. WG, we need to be reminded right now, the living God knows everything and no good deed that you've done without fanfare or recognition goes without notice with God who sees and knows all things. It has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. While you were grieving, you were serving your mother-in-law. And I know, and I've heard, and now the Lord repay your work. Look what he's saying to her. The Lord repay your work. What's he doing? He's pronouncing blessings on her. He's saying, you've done good, I know it, and I know God. And may the Lord bless you and repay your work. And in the case of Boaz, when we say the Lord bless you, like James says, if you say, hey, the Lord bless you and go away, leave them going away empty with unclothed when you can do something about it, then that's not true religion as it says in James, right? But in Boaz's case, the Lord bless you. And by the way, I'm his vessel to bless you because I can bless you. See, there's people that are poor that want to bless people and they can do what they can and they do and it's wonderful, it's awesome and it's beautiful in God's sight. But there's people who are wealthy who can bless people and really turn things around. And they're wealthy because God let them be wealthy so they can share that wealth and bless someone who's done good that no one else knows as unto the Lord, for the Lord, because they serve the Lord. That's how it works. So in this case, Boaz says, the Lord bless you. And I'm, now Boaz is like, it's like, Naomi shared the gospel with Ruth in heartache and sorrow. And now Boaz is sharing like a maturing faith as we go from glory to glory in sanctification. The glories and the mysteries as we read about in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. And now he's taking her deeper. He's like, you know what? The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. See, Boaz could say like, hey, I'm your hero in Jesus' name. Sam and I have been talking about this for the last few years. I had a conversation with Brian Broderson over at Big Calvary a year ago, and we were talking about someone who uh, has a lot of money and does a lot of good things with it, but they really control everything they give to. You know, that can go that way too. And Brian's observation was, well, they have the hero syndrome. They have to be the hero. And that really spoke to me because I want to be the hero, and you want to be the hero. We like the applause of men. We do a lot as a church, and I want to be the hero. I want Russia to wake up and go, Joey Brennan's the greatest pastor ever. But uh, we can't do that. Nyet, nyet, nyet. We can't do that. Because I lose the blessing, you lose the blessing, and the Lord's doing it anyways. What do we give but what the Lord gave us in the first place? Right? So hero syndrome is dangerous. And again, that's a danger with money. People with money can be the hero, but still kind of want to control it. Now, only the Lord really knows what that background is that Brian and I were talking about. If it's true, it's true. If it's not, it's not. But the Lord uses it to me like, hey, you're nobody's hero. You're just my servant. You're the vessel by which I move things. Stay out of the way. Seek me. Give it away. I'm the hero. Jesus is the hero of his church. Jesus is the hero of everything good, true, beautiful, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable on the planet Earth and the human experience in 2022 as it was in 2021 and will be in 2023 and beyond. Jesus is our hero. Boaz could look like the hero right here. It's like, hey, you know, let's say he's good looking. Let's say he's like, say he's really good looking. Let's say he's like 15, a really good looking 50-year-old. Yeah. He's like, hey, I can help you. 
Oh, really? You know, like, he's like, no, the Lord is good, and the God knows, and the Lord repay you. He will give you full reward by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you've come for refuge. Man, isn't this beautiful? Don't like, like, don't you want to replay this scene? You know, like if you're watching like on a streaming, don't you want to just kind of go back and like, ah, this is such a beautiful scene right here. Like if you had really good actors and you can imagine the emotion, like Boaz like looking at her and she's like, she feels like she's the lowest person on planet earth. She's a foreigner. She's working the minimum wage job. She's picking up the leftovers in the field. And he's like, hey, the Lord knows. And there's like this connection, you know, like this beautiful connection between this wealthy man of faith who stayed in land and prospered when his relative left and sold his property. And now he's in a position to bless many people. And she's like, why, why, why would you even look upon me? He's like, hey, hey, chin up. You're trusting in God. And God's taking care of you and he's going to repay you. It's a beautiful scene in a beautiful story. For me personally, I think it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible. This scene right here. There's a Gentile woman, the lowest place, entry level of existence in society. Completely helpless. And here's the most powerful man in the community. And it's all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord in the human experience. It is so beautiful. This is a beautiful story and a beautiful moment in God's word. God knows. And he knows. The wealth always stays behind. Every rich person leaves all their wealth behind. And whatever wealth increases on planet Earth, all these masters of the universe, whatever they do, they leave it behind. It all gets redistributed. All of it. All of it. It all gets redistributed. But the Lord doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and forever. So don't worry about people accumulating wealth and people losing wealth. He gives it to who he wants to. And he takes it from who he wants to. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said we've accepted uh, prosperity. Can we not accept adversity? It's all a test. It's all about the heart and being faithful in the little things and being trusted with bigger things. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart. And Jehovah Jireh is our provider in the church. Verse 14, excuse me, verse 13. So now she says, then she said, um, so this conversation's still going on, but we had to stop at that moment. And now, now, now she responds. So here she is like the lowest person speaking to the highest person, an older man, a younger woman. And she said, uh, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Man, her humility is just off the charts. Verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come, come here, eat of the bread and dip your piece of the bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed the parched grain to her and she, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. In other words, the best of the grain, not the leftovers. And do not reproach her. Also let uh, grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Like, leave some $20 bills in your wake, you know, that she, that she may glean and, and do not rebuke her. See, they trust his leadership. He's their boss. They love him. He loves them. They get it. They respect his perspective for this woman, and they're honoring it. He's earned their credibility as their boss, and they've earned his credibility as their employees, and they know that what he's doing, he's doing for a good reason and a good thing. 
Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so she brought it out and gave it to her, what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So it's interesting because the word, so verse 13 says, let me find favor in your sight. And then it says that she was satisfied with what she ate in verse 14. And then she was satisfied again later on in verse 18. That God was meeting her needs practically in this story. We don't know if she ever went with hunger or anything like that. We're just told this. But back to verse 13 where she said, her response when he said, you've come under the wings of the Lord God of Israel for refuge, she said, let me find favor in your sight. So let's talk about favor just for a second, what this phrase means, because you hear this a lot. Joel Olstein uses this phrase a lot. Actually, in his book um, that he wrote, the famous one, uh, this is one of his seven points about finding favor. So we have to ask ourselves, is finding favor like winning the lottery? Is, is there like a formula to it? Like, is there a formula to find favor? Because we see this phrase in the Bible, We'll see it in 1 Samuel with Hannah. She says, if I've now found favor. So this, obviously, this concept of favor, we know when we read about Joseph, it was Potiphar in Egypt with Pharaoh, he found favor. It's a very interesting term, to find favor. Is it something we can manufacture? No, it's not. Is it something lucky, like you got the right lottery ticket? No, it's not. The idea of finding favor is that the Lord is blessing you through someone because he's giving you favor in their eyes because you're walking with the Lord making good decisions and he's blessing you. So Ruth is finding favor from Boaz because God has seen all the good she's done and Boaz is in a position to bless her. She has found favor. And Boaz is an instrument of God to bless her who is seeking the Lord and obeying the Lord. Don't expect favor when you're not walking with the Lord. A person living selfishly or carnally or has selfish ambitions with wealth or decisions in favor, that's, that's all wrong. That's not what favor is about. Favor is about God blessing you in your journey, confirming you in your journey, and you're going the right direction under the right circumstances with the right people. Favor is when you get into college when there's no reason you should have. Favor is when you got the job when you're the least qualified, but they just hired you because they knew they should hire you. When Luke got hired with Hyundai, our son... I've mentioned this, but he went through this whole process with Hyundai. It's an executive position. He's 22, just graduated college, top of the class, all that. He's married. He's going to have a child soon. And he was working for Grand Canyon University, recruiting students for the college. And he, he did a year's quota in three months. And then he applied for this job with Hyundai because Corey Rudick, who used to be a deacon here, is way up in the Hyundai corporations, told Luke, dude, you're brilliant. You should be hiring, hiring for a job, applying for a job with Hyundai. So he got his foot in the door. And in the end, it came down to Luke and this uh, 38-year-old who had been a coffee, excuse me, a car person uh, in the industry, coming from another company, uh, and had all this experience in this field. And this guy, it was Luke and this guy. Luke had no experience in the car industry, and this guy. But, you know, it's kind of like when you, you draft that guy, you just know, like, Tom Brady in the fifth round is going to be that guy. You, sometimes just like, you just don't know why. You just, and they picked Luke. And Corey was blown away. He's like, there is no logical explanation for why they chose Luke, as impressive as he is, but he nailed his interviews. So when you make eye contact and you learn to do the minimum wage and treat people with respect, it'll serve you well. Hannah went on 60 auditions acting, never got one of them, but she can look the president in the eye and tell him what he needs to hear. I mean the president of the United States. You learn those things. 
and Luke had learned those things, he got the job. God gave him favor. He still works for Hyundai. He works for Hyundai Midwest in Denver. He's been living in Florida for a year. And they're not going to make him move because he does all these things. No one knows what he does. He just does. He's the coder and all these things. Like, God gave him favor, and he still has favor. Because God gives us favor when we're seeking the Lord, we're walking with the Lord, and he directs us where he wants us to be. God opens doors. We're told that God opens doors that no man can close and closes doors that no man can open. That's favor and disfavor. He will give you favor for a job, for a situation, because that's his will. And it defies logic and reason. I don't even know how you got the job. Because he gave you favor, and this is where he wants you to be. He knows the hairs on your head. And while he loves everybody, he definitely loves his children. And he's working personally in your life. Don't ever be afraid to ask God to close doors. Because that's disfavor. In my life, there have been tremendous people who have given, that God has given me favor in their eyes. When I signed the richest contract in pro surfing in 1982 with Hank 10. Joe Kofsky made me the highest paid pro surfer in the world when I was 13th in the world. God gave me favor in his eyes. It's huge for my career. God gave me favor of Bill Bernard and Surfer. When I came back from Vermont and didn't have a job and I was trying to figure out what I was doing in ministry, paid me three times what he should have and let me be a pastor for eight hours a day in the shop. God gave me favor. God gave me favor with Pastor Chuck. In three months' time, he gave me Thursday night, took good care of me, gave me raises. Even when I got on his bad side asking for too much money, I was still on his good side. And the last thing he did before he stepped into eternity is when I asked for a negotiated price on K-Wave, he gave me better than what I asked for. The last thing Chuck Smith ever did for Joey Baran was give me a better deal than I asked for on the radio. And you know you hear me on the radio? Because the deal he gave me before he stepped into eternity eight years ago. God gave me favor with Pastor Chuck. And he gave us worship generation. And Phil Wickham and Jeremy Camp, there was the bigger picture. It wasn't just Joey in the sanctuary. It was the birth of Phil Wickham and Jeremy Camp and their ministries, which are still thriving. Not to mention Luke Caldwell and all that he's doing with HGTV, writing books, and all these other things he's doing. If I could write, I couldn't write, I could write a series of books on the people that came through Worship Generation between 2000 and 2005. And not to mention even this church as well as an extension since then. God gives favor. He gives favor as we're seeking him sincerely, obeying him as best we can, and then he opens doors and he blesses your socks off. That's what he does. So it is a good thing to ask for God's favor because really his favor is confirmation that you're going in the direction he wants you to go and you're letting him be Lord of your life. And she said, I'm looking for favor. Um, she said in verse one of this chapter concerning Boaz, let me go after him who said I might find favor. And it says, he says, God's going to bless you. And then in verse 13, she says, let me find, uh, she said, let me find favor in your sight. And it happened. She was blessed beyond measure. Now we close out the chapter. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and, and said that the man's name is who I worked to is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be the Lord, he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead, exclamation mark. <laughs> like she's, she's awakened. She's quickened in her faith. Last time we saw her, I was like, oh, call me Mara. Like Eeyore. Oh, I don't ever work. Mara, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitterness. 
And here she says, what's she saying? Blessed be the Lord. And then Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Naomi's like, this is a really good turn of events. This is like, wow. And who does she give glory to? The Lord. Back in chapter one, she said, oh, my daughter-in-laws, may you find kindness from the Lord. And here she says, in fact, back in chapter one, she said, The Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. She mentioned the dead previously, her husband and her children. So she said to her daughter-in-law, when she told him, go home back to your families, she said, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as he dealt with the dead and with me. Well, here she says, blessed be the Lord, he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. W.G., body of Christ, Naomi is praising God right here. She's praising God. Sometimes it takes a long time to get past the hurt and the bitterness and the brokenness, but she is praising God. Because we read of Jesus that a smoking flax he won't quench and a bruised reed he won't break. Jesus will always elevate the brokenhearted. Our finger, the touch of our hands, the touch of our words, the touch of our lives, our personality, our walking in the room should tilt the room toward an elevated faith in everyone in the room. Our presence should elevate their faith in the living God. That's what our faith should do. Boaz shows up. The Lord bless you. And oh, the Lord bless you too as well. Oh, girl, I know your whole story. You're awesome. God's going to bless you, the God of Israel, under whose wings you come in. Hey, everything I got, get it. You guys give her everything. She's family. Hook her up, everything. It's like, give her everything. It's just so wonderful. This is one of the most joyful chapters in the entire Bible. Episode two is awesome. Like, we kind of want to go ahead to episode three right now. You know, like, next episode, like, but we're going to wait. We're not even going to look at the first part. We're just going to wait. But what a beautiful scene. What a beautiful story. Naomi's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, God. She came back to the land where she has to walk by the property that used to be hers. The house that used to be hers. And look at this man, Boaz, who had all the success during the famine, when they panicked, her husband panicked, and they left the house of bread. And yet, look at this now. The faith of Boaz inspires everyone around him. His employees, the, the woman Lois on the totem pole society, and even Miss Mara herself, Naomi. When you leave here tonight, and you wake up tomorrow, Wednesday morning, and go forward. I want us to go forward with this concept. How can I elevate the faith of everyone around me to trust more in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Our words, our action, our optimism, our disposition, the promises of God over everything. Because I want to be a part of this third episode. We are a part of this third episode. We're a part of this story. 
This church is an extension of the story of Ruth and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand and pray.